The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. It's been said that the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. I don't know exactly who said that. I think it was Captain Obvious. And he's received far too much credit for saying that. But nonetheless, the statement is true. And tonight we will take our first step into the Gospel of Mark. And I do so with some fear and trepidation. I'm much more comfortable beginning a journey where I can already see the end. And I feel like as we look at the letters, the epistles in the New Testament, you can kind of see the end. It's easy to look at the book and see the first chapter and the second chapter and the third chapter, maybe the fourth or fifth chapter if it's one of the little bit longer ones. But you can see what's there and you can kind of plan it out and know where you're going. But in a book like the Gospel of Mark, or any of the Gospels really, it's much longer. And it's really hard to to wrap your brain around all of it as you begin. When I was young and naive, I started the the book of Acts. And uh, that consumed about five or six years of my life. It took a long time to get through the book of Acts. And my plan is not to spend five or six years in the book of Mark. But... Since the book of Acts, I've smartened up and I've done 3 John and Philemon and Titus and 1 Peter and and Galatians and some of the easier books. We just finished the book of James and now I finally am doing what I've been putting off for a while, beginning the book of Mark. So turn your Bibles. Here we are. Here we go. Mark chapter 1. And tonight we are going to attempt to do two things. We are going to introduce the book And then look at the first eight verses. And I hope we can glean a few truths from the life of John the Baptist as we look at those verses. But while you're turning there, I want to give you a very brief introduction of the Gospel of Mark. First question we must ask is, who wrote it? Anybody want to offer a guess? Mark. Good. And why do you know that? Because it says so in the title, right? Except that there wasn't any titles to the books back when they were written. And there's no evidence within the book exactly who wrote it, clearly. And so the only way we know for sure, or the the way that we imagine that it was Mark that wrote it, is because it was the early church fathers that attributed Mark to the writing of this book. And that was the first time that's written down, is in 140 AD. And so Mark we assume, wrote the book of Mark. And I think that's a, that's a really good assumption. I, I think actually as we look at the evidence from outside and we compare it to the evidence inside Scripture, we can make a very strong case that Mark was the author. And my dilemma this week has been, do I spend a whole week on the person of John Mark and looking at how awesome his story is and how God worked through his life? Or do I spend this first week looking at the first eight verses of the Gospel of Mark. And it's a tough question for someone like me because I want you to have all of the information possible and I want you to hear the story of Mark. And as I started looking at all the things that God did in Mark's life, I thought, they need to hear this. But then I also thought, ah, oh, my plan is to go faster through the book and if I, if I don't even get to the first verse on the first night, it's not really a very good start. And so, here's a three-minute version of Mark's story. Are you ready? Set, go. The first you hear of Mark is in Acts chapter 12. He is the son of Mary. 
In, a- in Acts chapter 12, Mary is the person who owns the house that has the upper room in it. And that is where the disciples and the apostles are all praying. And they're asking God to release Peter from prison. He's been captured. James has been killed. And now they're like, oh no, Peter's going to get killed too. We need him released from prison. And so somebody's knocking at the door. It's Peter. Nobody believes it's Peter. So they have to, they, they go up and talk about it for a little bit. And they could just open the door. And open. So there's this a whole story there. I'm getting really off track. But Peter is there. And so John Mark is in this house, likely, because it's his mom's house, while they're praying for Peter and they see Peter released from prison. It's, a, it's an amazing start. It's very possible that this was the same upper room that was used in Acts chapter 1 with the group praying before Pentecost. It's also possible that this is the same upper room that they had the Lord's Supper in. And so it's very possible that Mark was very well acquainted with all of the apostles and, all, and, and Jesus. He might have been like the, the young kid that was just hanging around all the time while all of these events were taking place. He actually might be in his gospel a little bit, but we'll wait. We'll save that for later. Then, in, after Peter's release from prison in Acts chapter 13, John Mark, who's seen God do amazing things, decides, I'm going to be a missionary. So he decides, he goes out and is a missionary with Barnabas and Paul, and they go on their first journey, except John Mark's really not ready to be a missionary. And so, after the first island, he goes home. He quits. He fails. He decides that Jerusalem is the place he needs to be, and Jerusalem happens to be where Peter is. And so he goes back to his mom's house. Come Acts chapter 15, getting ready to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, I want to bring my nephew, John Mark, on the missionary journey. And Paul says, no, last time he quit, he's not very good at this. And and Barnabas says, I don't care, I want to bring him. And Paul says, no, we're definitely not bringing him. And the, the strife is so great between them that Paul takes Silas and leaves and Barnabas takes Mark and, and leaves on a different direction to go on a missionary journey. So now Mark is getting some missions uh, time with Barnabas. And then later on, we find that it seems like Paul has a little bit of a change of heart. When he writes to the church in Colossae and Paul is writing from a Roman prison, he writes and he says, hey, Mark might be coming to you. If he comes, receive him. So he's not saying a lot of great things about him, but at this point, at least he's saying he's worth receiving into your church. But then when he writes to 2 Timothy, and now Paul is in prison for the second time, so it's almost toward the very end of his life, he tells Timothy that Mark is actually very profitable for him in the ministry. And so Paul has seen the transformation of John Mark from a quitting uh, missionary to somebody who is very profitable in the ministry. But what's interesting about that is both of those times, Mark would have been in Rome for Paul's statements to make sense. And Peter is in Rome. Peter, toward the end of his life, was brought to Rome and put in prison. So now you have John Mark, who just happens to keep going wherever Peter is. And you have Paul, who has seen this transformation in his life. And the story we get from this man named Papias... In 140 AD, he says, Mark was a close associate of Peter, from whom he received the tradition of the things said and done by the Lord. This tradition did not come to Mark as a finished sequential account of the life of our Lord, but as the preaching of Peter. Preaching directed to the needs of the early Christian communities. Mark accurately preserved this material. So, the story we see unfold is that Mark's failure led him to Jerusalem where Peter was, and then somehow, just through events, he spent a lot of time with Peter over the next 20 or 30 years, and while that was happening, he hears Peter preach, and Mark takes notes. 
And as Peter's preaching, he's taking notes. And as he tells one story about Jesus, he writes it down. And another story about Jesus. And eventually, he's heard Peter tell these stories so many times, he's got a pretty good idea of how Jesus' life unfolded. So he takes pen to paper and starts writing the first gospel. And Mark was the first gospel. And I can imagine somebody coming up to Mark and Mark having his pen in hand and writing the first sentence down. And he says, Mark, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to write a gospel. And they're like, what's a gospel? Because nobody knows. What is what does a gospel look like? He says, I don't know. I'm just going to write down everything I remember Peter saying about Jesus. And I'm going to talk to some other people and make sure that what I'm saying is right. And I, I'm going to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus and of his miracles and of the death of Jesus and of the resurrection of Jesus. And I hope that when I do that, people will hear the story and that they'll believe. And, and this might seem obvious to us, but this was like a revolutionary thought. Right? Nobody had done this. It had been almost 30 years in, in the church. And now, finally, the life of Jesus is being, being written down. And it would seem as though Matthew and Luke both had a copy of Mark's gospel, or at least had part of Mark's gospel, or at least had read Mark's gospel, because there are so many things that are said in Matthew and Luke that are almost identical to what Mark wrote down. And so the way that God used Mark is amazing. It's incredible to think that a failed missionary little kid who was at one point just kind of running around watching all these things happen and and eventually tried to be a missionary and failed, that God used him in such an extraordinary way to write the first gospel. The gospel of Mark is the shortest of the gospels. Uh, It is in some ways a cliff notes version. So sometimes when there's a long conversation that would take place in, in Matthew or Luke, Mark would simply say, this happened. Okay? We'll see that example come up very soon in the temptation. Mark will just simply say, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Instead of explaining what the temptation looked like and who said what, he just gives us the the really brief version. Mark is very concerned with what Jesus did and less concerned with all that was taught. And we get more of the teaching in the gospel of, well, the other three gospels. So, he writes his gospel, and it seems like he writes with a missionary mind, because what we see is, if if he's writing from Rome, and that's what tradition tells us, it seems like he's writing to people who he doesn't assume always understand the Jewish context that the the events took place in. And so he explains some of those things to them as he writes. And it seems like he writes with the goal of, of showing people that Jesus was fully man, and that he was fully God, and that he came to die. And he puts a lot of emphasis, almost one third of the Gospel of Mark, is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. So that's, that's clearly what he wanted to emphasize. With all that said, let's begin. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Immediately we see Mark's desire to connect the events of the gospel that he's writing with the promises of God that are found in the Old Testament. I think it's significant that he does this, right? He wants to make sure that the forerunner of Jesus isn't just a guy who showed up one day and went into the wilderness and started preaching, but that this guy was actually prophesied, and he points to two, two prophecies. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi writes, Behold, I will send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek 
shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So Malachi says, the messenger is coming and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to actually usher in the new covenant. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, Isaiah says, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so he goes on to explain how this God would come and he would rule and reign over his people. And so Mark says, hey, just so you know, John the Baptist, the one I'm about to talk about, he was prophesied. This is God's promise being fulfilled. Um, Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, and Pastor mentioned it, and so it's in my head right now. And I just thought the, the idea that every story whispers the name of Christ. Every story whispers his name. That's, that's kind of, she's famous for saying that. But that's not new with her. Every gospel, even here in Mark, Mark doesn't include a nativity story. He doesn't include a genealogy like Matthew and Luke. He doesn't, he doesn't begin with the beginning of time like John, but he still wants us to be sure that this is all one story, right? And that what's happening here is not a new story. It's a continuation of the old story. And this is just how John fits into that story. Verse number four. Let's find out who the messenger is. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The way that Mark writes, you'd almost wonder if he was limited with the amount of paper he had in front of him. Because it seems like he just wants to get out as much as possible in as few words as possible. Right, so it's succinctly, he introduces us to John. John, what's he doing? He's baptizing in the wilderness. What else is he doing? He's preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's, that's a summary of John's whole ministry. He preached, and he preached the baptism of repentance for what? For the remission of sins. And the idea of for the remission of sins could also be translated unto the remission of sins. And so it's not this completed act, like they got baptized, therefore their sins were forgiven forever. It was more a baptism that was unto or leading toward the remission of sins. It was certainly part of the process, and we'll see more of that as it continues. He makes it very clear later on that his baptism didn't save. It was just water. So in verse 5, he says, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. John chose the worst place possible to start a church. I know he's not really starting a church, but can you imagine being like, hey, I'm going to start a ministry... And my hope is that people will come and listen to me in my ministry. Great. Okay. I mean, I think you should make sure you get on a corner that's nice and busy. Lots of people can see you. You know, maybe be close to the, the freeway so that, that everybody that passes knows exactly where you're at and can easily get to you. No, my thought was I was going to go deep into the desert. <laughs> and that's where I was going to start preaching. Maybe eventually somebody would hear about me and they'd come out and they'd tell their friends and they'd come out and they'd tell their friends and they'd come out. Yeah, that's, that's what John did. He, he literally went into the wilderness and said, okay, pulpit here, I'm going to start preaching. And so he did. 
And he preached a message that most people don't want to hear. What do you want to hear when you go hear preaching? You're a sinner and you need to repent. He didn't even have like that. But Jesus died to save you yet. He had like the, well, there's one coming soon. No, I mean, he's awesome. He's mighty. We'll get to that in a bit. But it was really like such a simple, I'm going into the wilderness to preach. And so he did. And who came to see him? Now, it's possible that Mark is just um, embellishing what happened a little bit just to make the point. But even if this is an embellishment, it says, there went out unto him all the land of Judea and, and they of Jerusalem, meaning all of those in Jerusalem. Like everybody was walking into the desert to hear John preach. What an amazing thing. Now, maybe it was the clothing. Maybe it was the loincloth that they really wanted to see. Maybe it was this crazy guy who was eating locusts, eating bugs and wild honey. Maybe they were going out for the show. But when you read this, it really doesn't seem like that's the reason. When you read it, you find out that he was preaching a hard message and people were responding. People were confessing their sins. And they were getting into the water and they were being baptized for the remission of sins. I mean, they were listening to what he was saying. I think maybe it started with people talking about his wild appearance. Maybe the first few people came to see this crazy guy in the wilderness. But then they heard his boldness in preaching against sin. They saw his willingness to preach against the religious and the political establishment. I mean, he had Pharisees and Sadducees come out to him. He called them vipers. He told them, don't trust, a- don't trust the fact that you're from Abraham. That's not going to do it for you. He was, he was bold when dealing with the religious leaders, those that everybody else would be, oh, they're perfectly holy. Don't say anything against them. And he said, you need to repent. When the king comes, he boldly points out his sin. And ultimately, at the cost of his own life. But he's so bold. And so I think people saw that. He, they saw that... that This guy is true, and he's honest, and and he's giving us the truth. And there is something that is is likable, or that that draws you to somebody who you know is going to tell you the truth. And it might not always tickle your ears, it might not always feel good, but you know you're going to get the truth. I think that's what they saw in John, right? He is having a real impact on the lives of those who come. And so maybe they first come out to see the show, but eventually they see... This is the real deal. And my life is being changed, and I need to bring out my friend. And that's what they did. And so John's ministry flourished. In fact, if we were to read the scriptures and just take it at face value here, it would seem more people came out to see John's ministry than Jesus' ministry. Okay? That's how this went down. And so the people were repenting. It means turning or returning to God. And they were being baptized for or unto the remission of sins. And we got asked the question, what does it mean that they were repenting? And the word repent means um, turning or returning. So the idea is they were going one way, they saw their sin, and they were turning from their sin to something else. The baptism of repentance was something that was reserved primarily for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So one of the steps of a Gentile wanting to become a Jew is that they would be baptized unto the remission of sins. So what's happening here is you have Jewish people who are understanding that their Jewishness isn't enough. In fact, they're understanding that they're sinners and that they need to repent. And the baptism 
is an outward sign of what's happening within their hearts. What they're seeing inside of them is that they need to be washed. They need to be cleansed. So they're being baptized to show a sign of that. And I think it's really neat that back then, this baptism is instituted. Okay? And it was, it was water. He makes that very clear in the next verse. It was just a water baptism. But the water was intended to show the reality that was taking place in their heart. And at that time, the reality was step one. The reality was, I'm a sinner and I repent. And they didn't have the whole story yet. They didn't have the finish, right? But they had one who was out in the wilderness and he was pointing to the finish. Look at verse number seven. He preached saying, there comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And so he introduces to the world Jesus Christ. The one who is promised he is coming. And I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Right? His description of Jesus is twofold. First of all, he's mighty. He's mighty. He's mightier than you and I can ever imagine. In Luke chapter 3 verse 15... There are people that come to John the Baptist and they believe that John the Baptist might be the Christ, right? So they're asking him. And here's the chance for John to be truly in the spotlight. Like he would have been celebrated as the king of the Jews and everybody would have listened to everything he ever said. If he says yes. He's abundantly clear. No way. I'm not that guy. No, that guy is so mighty. He is so awesome. He is so powerful. I can't even do the job that's not, that servants aren't allowed to do, right? I can't get on my face and take off his dirty, disgusting shoes. That's how great he is. John knows his role. And so he says that Jesus is mighty. And he says that what he's going to do is he's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And and what that means is he's going to immerse you with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Ghost is going to come inside of you because of the ministry of Christ. That's an amazing thought. That's an amazing thing. Hey, what what I can do, though I'm speaking as John, what John can do as a prophet, he can lead you to repentance. He He can lead you to the place where you need a Savior, where you know that there's nothing in you. But Jesus can can do something that allows God to reside in you. That's who's coming. So John is pointing. In light of this, you ought to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message of John. And So as we look at this story, as we look at John the Baptist, there are so many lessons that that jump out at us. And I want to, tonight, narrow it down to the two that are most clear to me in the text. The first one is the content of the message. Let's just take what's very clear here in the text. What's clear here is the content. John's mantra was that we should repent for the king is coming. His mantra is repentance. Why? Because you've sinned. Because you've broken God's holy law. Because being an Israelite isn't enough. Because being a Baptist isn't enough. Because you've 
gone to church or you haven't, because of any of those things, it's not enough. And so he says, repent. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to speak with John. And can you guess what he said to them? I told you already. Said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Oh, you generation of vipers. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Right? And what he's saying to them is, they need to flee because the wrath is coming. And then after that, he gives a little bit of a description of Jesus when he comes. And it's both an encouraging description and a terrifying description of how Jesus will separate and that some will be burned and that some will be saved. They needed to flee. And others might have thought, what do you mean, John? How can you say that to them? They're the righteous men of Israel. You can't talk to them like that. And so he says this, Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He says, don't think that your lineage is going to save you. Don't be so foolish. And the point that he's making is, there is nothing that can save you. right? If their lineage, as, as like the people of God, the children of Abraham couldn't save them, what could? He says, no, you don't understand. God is so powerful. If he wanted children, if, if that was what it was all about, he could talk to those stones and they'd come to life and they'd be children of Abraham. I mean, the idea that, that it's your lineage, it's, it's foolish. Why? What's the point? The point is you must repent. You must repent. And this struck me personally in, in a couple ways. First is, I think that the attitude of the believer more often should be one of repentance. Right? I think that we come to Christ, and a lot of times what we want to do is we want to separate, like I've, I've come to Christ and I've been saved, and now all of a sudden I have a completely different life after. And it's, it's true that you're a new creature and you've, you've been given new life. But I don't think we get up from there and say, okay, well, I repented. You know, I repented in the past and I'm done. I think it's a life where we keep going back to saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. And you saved me and I thank you and you need to keep changing me, keep working on my life, right? In First John, we're told that we need to admit that we're still sinning, but that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's for the believer, right? That's as we continue in this Christian life. And so I thought maybe it'd be better for me to live a life more, more often repenting because what it seems like in this text is that in order for Jesus to, to come to these people properly, they first had to repent. So I'm, I'm thinking of my life, and I think if we get to the point where we're like, no, I'm okay, I wonder if that hinders this, the relationship we have with Christ. I think that more often we should be in the attitude, I need you. I need you, I'm sorry, I'm no good, I need your help, I need, you know, I can't do this by myself. So I need you. And that's the attitude of repentance. The second thing, I think, is that sometimes we're tempted to neglect repentance when we're presenting the gospel. Sometimes what we do is we'll say something along the lines of, all have sinned, right? You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we've all sinned. And so what Jesus did is he died on the cross for our sins, and if you put your faith in him, you'll be saved. And that, that's true. I mean, we've said a lot of true things there, right? But it seems like the Bible places an emphasis where we're not placing an emphasis, 
And that is on this idea that we've got to repent. Because if I think, well, Jesus died for me, um, that I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me, all I have to do is put my faith in him, I might not realize that that's a turning from who I was. That, that, that's a recognizing that I can't save myself. I might be tempted to think, okay, well, I'm just going to accept Jesus and I'm going to add that on to what I already have. I'm already a pretty good person, now I'm a pretty good person with Jesus. But repentance is necessary, because repentance is where you say, can't do it. It's not me. I'm a sinner. there's, There's nothing that I can do to merit God's favor. There's nothing that I can do to earn eternal life. And so I repent. I turn from my way, from my righteousness, from my religion, from whatever it is, and I turn fully to Jesus, and then I put my faith in Jesus. Right? Now, there, when you came to Christ, it might not be this, this clear, like, one-step, two-step thing, but it, it is part of the gospel presentation. Repent and have faith. And before Jesus bursts in onto the scene, John comes and he says, you need to repent because Jesus is coming. So I think we need to remember that. We need to remember it as we preach the gospel. John highlights for us the importance of the state of our heart when we seek communion with Jesus. And the state of our heart needs to be one of humble repentance. So that's the first thing, is the content of the message. The second thing that I think is abundantly clear is the character of the messenger. John's character, he is boldly obedient to God's revealed word. Boldly obedient to God's revealed word. Now, the Bible does not tell us why John ends up in the wilderness in a loincloth eating locusts and wild honey. Right? We read that, and it strikes us as odd and strange, and we're never told clearly that he, was, he needed to do that, like that God came to him and said, this is what you're to eat. Can you imagine that conversation? Hey, uh, John, I want you to start a church. Okay, where? In the desert. Great. And you're going to wear a loincloth. Okay. And eat bugs. That would be weird, Right? But I'm trying to think of why John would just do that all by himself. Why would John just... Now, I think part of what was happening is that John is, even in his actions, identifying himself with the Old Testament prophets. Right? They did some strange things to attract attention. But can I remind you that the Old Testament prophets, when they did those strange things, it was God that told them to do them. Right? They didn't come up with these plans. God did. So we don't have it recorded for us that John was supposed to do those things, but it seemed like it was supposed to be a part of his ministry. This is, it wasn't just like some quirk in the personality of John the Baptist, but that was, that was part of what God wanted him to do in his ministry. And so when I'm thinking that way, I think he must have just been being obedient somehow. I don't, I don't know how that conversation took place, but somehow it seems like obedience. So, so for me, when I first look at it, I think he, he was boldly obedient to some really strange requests. But we see this very clearly. If you don't buy that one, that's okay. But we see it very clearly in that the message he preached, it was one of staunch repentance. He didn't airbrush it. He didn't soften the blow. He didn't change the message depending on who was there. He actually preached the same message to the point that it got his head chopped off. So he was boldly obedient to the message that God gave him to preach. Why? Because he was sure that it was God's message. 
he was sure that he was being obedient to God's word. And so what I would say to you tonight is the character of the messenger, character of the believer in Christ, should be one who is boldly obedient to God's revealed word. And that requires us to get into the word, to know what it says, and then, then as we hear what it says, we must take it and do it. And we've talked about this before, but I think that sometimes we have this like gap where we hear truth and we believe it to be true and we sit in church and nod our heads and then we go out the doors and it doesn't, we never apply it to our lives. And I think sometimes that happens. I don't know why. I think it's just, we just get used to it. And we're not purposefully being boldly obedient to the word of God. But John the Baptist was. The second thing I see in his character is that he humbly pointed people to Christ. He knew the whole story and he knew his role. And it was a great role. He was the the one who came before Christ to point others to Christ. But when people said, are you the Christ? He said, no way. I'm not even close. He knew his role. And I think that his attitude um, of humility is revealed most clearly in John chapter 3, verse 30. When he speaks to his disciples, he says, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. That is the heart of any true servant of Christ. It is all about him, and it's not about me. And I want him to increase, and I don't want anybody to think about me. I don't care if they know my name. I don't care if they, they've seen anything I've ever done. It's all about him. And so he humbly pointed people to Christ. These two things, boldly being obedient and humbly pointing to people to Christ, they're not new. Right? We all know them. They're simple, but I think they're profound. I think that if we were humble, repentant people, inviting sinners to repent of their sin and to come to the one who can baptize with the Holy Spirit, I think it would change our lives. I think it would change our communities, our church. And this is the attitude that is seen by all the servants of Christ in the New Testament. They're pointing to Christ. They're, they're telling people about the one who came. And so John was before, and he pointed forward, and we're after, and we point back, but we have the same goal, the same message. John played his role in God's unfolding story of redemption. And now it's up to us to play our part. We need to trust God's spirit to work in hearts, to convict, to draw, and to save those who trust in him. We must, like John, humbly and boldly point the world around us to the Christ who has come to take away the sins of the world.